Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As long-term listeners of our show know, each and every week I enter into a conversation with a guest about the parasha, the weekly Torah reading that is shared in synagogues throughout the world, part on Monday, part on Thursday, and the entire parasha on Saturday morning during services. This week, the parasha is entitled Kitisa. It begins in Exodus 30, verse 11, and continues through Exodus 34 to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Let me give you a synopsis of the portion before I introduce my guest. The people of Israel are told at the beginning of the portion to contribute exactly one half shekel of silver to the sanctuary. Instructions are also given regarding the making of the sanctuary's water basin, anointing oil, and incense. The text tells us that Bitzalel and Ahuleav are called wise-hearted and are placed in charge of the sanctuary's construction and people are once again commanded to keep the Sabbath. When Moses does not return when expected from Mount Sinai, the people make a golden calf and worship it. God proposes in his anger to destroy the errant nation, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses descends from the mountain carrying the tablets of the testimony, as it's described in the text, engraved with the Ten Commandments. Seeing the people dancing around the golden calf, he breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, and has the primary culprits put to death. He then returns to God to say, if you do not forgive me, blot me out from the book that you have written. God forgives, but in effect says that the sin of their uh, building of the golden calf will be felt for many generations. At first, God proposes to send his angel along with them, but Moses insists that God himself accompany his people to the promised land. The Torah portion ends by telling us that Moses prepares a new set of tablets, once more ascends the mountain where God reinscribes the covenant on these second tablets. On the mountain, Moses is also granted a vision of the divine 13 attributes of mercy which from the Torah find their way into the liturgy of the Jewish people. So radiant is Moses' face upon his return that he must cover it with a veil, which he removes only to speak with God and teach his laws to the people. That, in a nutshell, is our parasha. To discuss the nuances of the parasha is Rabbi Joseph Klein, Joseph Klein uh, served as the rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then became the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel of Oak Park, Michigan in 1997, 
until he retired as Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Emmanuel in 2013. Since the fall of 2015, Rabbi Klein is the visiting rabbi of the Gross Point Jewish Council. He is currently adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies Program of Oakland University and Rochester University, and teaches in the Metro Detroit Jewish Federation Adult Jewish Program. While in Indiana and Tennessee, he was adjunct faculty in humanities at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, Indiana State University, and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Rabbi Klein, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Uh, Hello, nice to be here. This morning, we're going to start with uh, Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. Um, and I'm going to offer it to our listeners, and then you want to chat um, about a, a particular verse. So the text begins, God said to Moses, write these words, for according to these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with God 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tablets the word of the covenant and the ten words. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And let's begin with that verse that Moses okay. knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So the text does not tell us, A, why the skin of his face was shining, uh, uh, nor uh, how it happened, uh, nor that uh, Moses didn't even know about it. It's, a, it's a rather confusing. So it's left to the rabbis of uh, commentary about uh, 2,000 years ago, a little less, uh, to uh, look at this verse and explain why it is that his face was shining and what was so unusual about it. So the rabbis in Midrash, in commentary on this uh, particular piece of Torah, uh, said that Moses is up on Sinai as God is inscribing the tablets, and God is inscribing the tablets with black fire, uh, and that in as Moses is near to this inscription, his face is picking up a reflection of this black fire. I imagine it. I imagine it uh, sort of like um, uh, being around a campfire, and you you stand in front of a campfire, and and as you get warm, if not hot, and you turn away from the campfire, you can feel the heat radiating from your body. That's how I imagine it. So Moses is radiating this black fire, comes down, and uh, the people find it very strange. They don't know what to make of it, and so Moses covers his face. But the Midrash continues to say, that Torah is written with black fire, fire on fire, and that the letters are the black fire. So what does it mean? 
what might it have meant for the original readers or listeners to this Midrash? What does it mean to us to say that Torah, God's revelation, is written with black fire? So imagine we have a group of people again around a campfire and uh, everybody is looking at the campfire and uh, the leader of the group says to everyone, I want you to close your eyes and when I count to three, I want you to open your eyes and then close them again. So they do that and they open and then they close and the leader says to the group around the campfire, now tell me what you saw as you opened your eyes and then closed them. And the consequence of that question will be that the people around the campfire will all have seen different things because the, the, the fire is three-dimensional and they're in different positions around the fire. So what does it mean to say that Revelation is written with black fire? It seems to me that it means that whoever is looking at it will necessarily see something different. That what makes revelation divine, what makes it revelation, is that the same text will necessarily be perceived, understood differently by different folks. This is, this is a very uh, different concept than talking about uh, revelation as literally carved in stone, absolute, permanent, totally objectively divine. The, the notion that the rabbis are, are hinting at, if not being very specific about, is that Torah will necessarily be seen differently. What makes Torah true uh, is different than what, what makes a math book true, that uh, A squared plus B squared always equals C squared. It's always the same, and it's true. But the truth of Torah is a truth that will be necessarily interpreted. Now, going back to that campfire, if we were to say, the leader were to say to the group around the campfire, this time, when I count to three, I want you to open your eyes and then close them and then open them up and close them again. And let's talk about the result of that. And the result will be that each individual, having opened his or her eyes a second time, will see something different because the fire is not only three-dimensional, but the fire is always changing. So when the rabbis say that Torah is written with black fire, what they are telling us is that every time we come to it, we ought to see something different. That we come to this same parsha, this same Torah portion, every year about this time, every year. But the, the glory of revelation of Torah is that when we come to it again, we should be looking for something different. So not only will it, it will we respond differently as individuals uh, when we read it, but every time we come to it, because of our own circumstances, because of our own emotional uh, state, because of, of how we've grown since the last time, uh, we've seen it, or, or how our culture and society have changed since the last time we saw it, we will see something different. It's a very interesting notion 
of what makes Torah not only revelation, uh, but divine. If I could interrupt you just for a moment, Rabbi, um, with two things. One, you're suggesting in this uh, Midrash that the rabbis were um, understanding an individual interpretation of Torah, but how does that fit with the historical notion of Judaism uh, being a communal response to Torah? Um, would not this Midrash lead to uh, many, many different communities as opposed to one uh, perspective? And the second thing is that obviously there are individuals who read the text as literal. What do they do with the literal meaning of the text? Uh, well, there are a lot of answers to that. Uh, the, the first, regarding community, I think what the rabbis were saying is it is indeed up to the community to decide what God wants from us, that the commandments, the rituals, the customs, uh, the rules, the laws that are uh, presented to us in Torah are meant for us to interpret, are meant for us to uh, uh uh, assign meaning within the community. And if the community uh, disagree, maybe not disagree, but have different interpretations, then it's going to be up to the community uh, to decide what works for them. Uh, and, and throughout rabbinic literature, rabbinic literature that begins uh, in the second century, in the, the third, second and third century, into well, all the way through to today, in the rabbinic discussions that we call uh, Talmud, uh, there are uh, innumerable uh, opinions of what a particular notion from Torah uh, or rabbinic law ought to be, and it becomes, and it's up to the community uh, to decide. And I forgot the second part of your second part of your question. Okay, so what you're suggesting is that. Um the people of Israel are multiple communities. Could be. Rather than a monolithic approach to the Torah. Uh, the second question is, um, many people who are listening uh, this morning um, read the text in a literal manner. I see. And they are not comfortable with an com uh, uh, interpretive approach what would you say to those who read the text in a literal manner about what this uh, text is teaching? That Moses' face was on fire or radiated, heat. I guess that's what your um, image is, that Moses' face radiated the heat of revelation and the heat of the interaction with the divine but the text is not so interpretive on the surface of it. Um, and the last part is, since um, Moses is said that he didn't know his face was uh, shining from the literal perspective, how would you explain that to the literalist? Well, uh, you use the word surface, and that's a, a good phrase. The, the mystics 
use the term pardes, uh, pardes from which we get our uh, English word paradise, by the way. Uh, pardes in Hebrew is really an orchard. Uh, but the mystic said that Torah is written on four different levels. And the four letters of the word pardes uh, 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 tell us of those levels. The first is peshat, meaning the surface. So what the text says on the surface is certainly true. But beneath the surface are, uh, imagine the layers of an onion. Beneath the surface, uh, there is a uh, uh, remes and a drash and a sod. Uh, the um, midrashic interpretation, uh, there is a deeper midrashic uh, interpretation, and then a the mystic said also a secret interpretation. So for those people that are, are, are focusing on the Peshat, on the surface, on the simple, on the direct, on the objective statement of the text, uh, that's fine for them. For those that want to go deeper, there are those uh, other levels. So it's not to discount one over the other, only to say that they exist. Um, we have this um, reading from a second century text called Mishnah, in a section of the Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, in which uh, we're quoted that Rabbi Ben Bagbag, probably not his real name, um, but says, turn Torah over and over for everything is in it. Reflect on it, grow old and gray in it, and do not stir from it, for there is no better portion for you than this. So I guess even in the second century, they understood what you're teaching this morning, that every time we come to the text, there is something new to be found. Um, if in the time that's available, I want to ask you about how this section of Torah uh, finds itself quoted and acted upon in Christian texts. Um, and in particular, there does seem to be um, this quote from 2 Corinthians um, 3.13, um, in which Paul seems to say, uh, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of glory, that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened uh, indeed to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there since only in Christ is it set aside. So um, the text, 2 Corinthians, certainly reinterprets this in a way that the rabbis uh, didn't expect. Right. Uh, and Paul talks about the the radiance being uh, the glory of God, that while Moses apparently was able to uh, um, see God, so to speak, face to face and, and, and engage and, and absorb the glory of God, the Israelites, it was too much for them. And that was what scared them. They were they were uh, in awe uh, of the. Uh, radiance of Moses' face. So to keep the people from being frightened, because uh, they couldn't handle the glory 
a true glory of God. Uh, Moses covers his face with a veil. Now, Paul uh, is writing to uh, uh, a non-Jewish community. Uh, Paul is uh, uh, letting the um, non-Jewish community uh, become or encouraging them to become part of the people of Israel uh, without necessarily becoming Jews. And so Paul uh, continues and he says, even to this very day in Paul's day, uh, the um, the Jews cannot fully appreciate, understand, or grasp the true glory of God. They 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 have this veil over their face. Uh, they because the true glory of God is beyond their ability to to accept. Um, and uh, he's saying to his folk, this veil is now lifted for you. You indeed are able to perceive the truth of the gracious gift that God is giving you, that you can maybe welcomed into the people of Israel. And Paul continues, all of us with unveiled faces, we see the glory of God as reflected in a mirror, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. So Paul takes this notion of uh, from this story of the veil and the people aren't able to see it and turns it around completely to uh, uh, for his own uh, for his own message. You know, Paul makes his own midrash. This is Paul's own commentary, uh, and I, I think th though it may run counter to what. Uh, Judaism is all about, and certainly what the rabbis uh, were saying. You know, if it's a if it's a common if it doesn't disrupt the text, that seems to me uh, for the Christian world it becomes a, a, a legitimate commentary on it uh, if it works within the story and, and doesn't uh, uh, tear the story the original story apart. Well, I think the interesting thing is you're correct. It certainly fits within the genre of Midrash, and in fact, may in fact be, as you indicated to the audience, both a Peshat, a simple uh, understanding of what a veil is, but also a Drash, a homiletical understanding of veil. What's interesting to consider is whether the words of Corinthian are part and parcel of the notion that grew within uh, Judea, within Christian uh, history and Christian theology that uh, Jews were blinded to the truth, and whether a veil, which can be permeable and hide some things, becomes a permanent impediment uh, for the Jews to see the glory of uh, God. Um, I don't know if you have a thought upon that, but it does... Um, strike me that it goes beyond its historical context. Well, historical context, let's put that in quotes. Uh, um, remember, Paul, Paul is preaching uh, to non-Jews. Uh, he is not preaching to Jews. He is, his mission is very different from the mission of the Jerusalem church, those that Jesus left behind, James, Peter, uh, and the uh, rest of the disciples after uh, uh, the uh, uh, 
Good Friday crucifixion. Uh, they, the Jerusalem church, are bringing the message, the good news of the risen Christ to, uh, to the Jewish world. Paul is speaking to the non-Jewish world, and he has to set himself apart from the message that James and Peter uh, and the others are, uh, uh, are, are uh, promoting uh, to the Jewish community. So it has to be different. He, he has to say, we are special. Uh, he does not want uh, to uh, his, his audience, he does not want them to accept the commandments. He wants to say that the commandments were only a temporary measure that God gave the people of Israel uh, to put them on the right path, to reconcile them with God. But with the uh, resurrection of the Christ, now a new path is opened for non-Jews to become part of the covenant of the people of Israel. And so it has to be different and it has to be distinct and it has to be special and unique. And I think we see that's what we see uh, behind Paul's message. Well, it's certainly a message that resonated with what Paul called the Gentiles um, and led to uh, the break between Paul and the Jerusalem church. Um, I did not want our time together to uh, end without us uh, referring to the statue of Moses by Michelangelo, <laughs> um, in which there seems to be another midrash, this time in stone. And perhaps you can share with our listeners um, why this, too, is a midrash, because I'm sure many of them are familiar with the statue. Well, the... Uh, um when Michelangelo uh, was commissioned to, or maybe not commissioned, but decided uh, to uh, sculpt this huge statue of Moses, he went to his Latin text, uh, biblical text, uh, here in Exodus 34. And the text said, uh, in Hebrew, uh, that uh, his face shone uh, with light. Uh, the... Um, uh, but the Latin text, um, uh, the Latin text used the word, uh, uh, translated the word of karen, which means to shine. Uh, uh, the, the root for karen, think of it as a, a cone, uh, to radiate. So the, the Hebrew text uses the word karen to say his, his uh, face shone with light. But Karen can also be a noun uh, in Hebrew that means horn. So Michelangelo's Latin translation read to him, Moses had horns of light. Uh, and so he uh, uh, pictured Moses with horns and so put small horns on the top of Moses's head. Um, the Latin text, meaning his face was horned with light, if we want to use the verb, uh, was not meant uh, in the Latin translation. It was not meant in any pejorative way. It was just an expression uh, that was used. It, it was only later uh, in uh, uh, other translations and this notion of horns uh, that Moses having horns becomes a pejorative idea, uh, as in Satan having horns. Uh, and that Jews, therefore, uh, have horns. Um, but uh, 
this becomes, as you say, a midrash written in stone uh, with Moses's horns. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Joseph Klein of uh, Michigan, uh, for sharing with us the history of midrash and the interpretation of our portion. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can find a podcast of This Morning Show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. I wish you shalom and a good day. Thank you.